Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome to this episode of Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History. During each program, Tim will take you behind the scenes and share stories and memories from his long career in the world of IndyCar competition. With seven championship rings to his credit, Tim not only understands auto racing history, he has lived it. And now, for the most famous words in racing history. Drivers, start your engines! Welcome to this episode of Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History. I'm Joe Ziemba, and we're back again with another episode with Tim. We're going to follow the same format. I'm lucky enough to be able to ask Tim some questions, and we did receive some questions from listeners last week. In fact, our main topic idea came from a listener, and I think the Sports History Network, again, is pleased to have Tim on on board. Some of the producers and staff at the Sports History Network are still smiling after Tim told the story last time about being deserted in the middle of nowhere with no wallet, no shirt. Not really any shoes, but if you missed that one or missed any of Tim's programs, go to sportshistory.com and they will be stored there forever. You can catch up or they're now on YouTube. Again, look for the Sports History Network on YouTube. So tonight we're going to talk about um, Tim's memories and experiences from his time working with Formula One and IndyCar champion driver Nigel Mansell. So, Tim, here's the first question for you. you know, during the running of this year's Indianapolis 500, and as usual, many of the drivers who were represented different countries around the world. We even saw former NASCAR champ Jimmy Johnson win the Rookie of the Year honor. So, from your viewpoint, what are the main challenges facing a driver at Indy after that driver may have been very successful in Formula One or NASCAR? Well, let's take Formula One first. Uh, the cars are similar, uh, rear engine. Uh, Formula One cars are the highest technology race cars in the world. Uh, Indy cars are they're also a high-tech car. But uh, Formula One cars used to be a lot lighter than Indy cars, but I believe they're, the weight uh, of the two cars is pretty similar these days, within 100 pounds or so. Formula One Drivers don't run any ovals, however. Uh, they're all road courses. And uh, Formula One races start from a, a dead stop, from a standing start. And uh, IndyCar races are all rolling starts on an oval, uh, obviously. So in Indianapolis, the IndyCar series does a pretty good job of uh, acclimating drivers to running at the speedway. They have Ricky orientation where... Uh, they got a couple days uh, for the track opens where the rookies get to go and run and get acclimated to the track. As far as Jimmy Johnson driving a – Jimmy Johnson is one of only three seven-time NASCAR Winston 
her uh, used to be the Winston Cup Series, but uh, he won th- seven championships. The only other two gentlemen that accomplished that were Richard Petty and Dale Earnhardt. So Jimmy Johnson, uh, very, very accomplished uh, race driver. And for him to go from a 3,400-pound stock car to a 1,550-pound Indy car, uh, stock car obviously has fenders. Uh, the driver sits in, in a, enclosed in a stock car with a roll cage all around him. It's just a huge, huge uh, uh, turnabout for him to get in an open-wheel car and Last year, Jimmy Johnson didn't run any ovals. He drove. He went to work for Chip Ganassi last year after he called an end to his NASCAR career, and uh, he ran all road courses. But this year, uh, he decided he wanted to run the Speedway. And uh, I mean, to go from NASCARs, stock cars, they've run it. They don't run the oval anymore. They run the road course now. But he ran the oval at Indianapolis many times. However. I mean the the speed differential between the cars is uh, is I think the pole speed at, for a stock car in Indy was around 175 mile an hour, whereas they qualified Indy uh, the pole record this year was 234 miles an hour, and that's with an open wheel car. So you're sitting out in the breeze. I mean you got the aero screen now, but it's still an open wheel car, open uh, cockpit, and it's just a huge adjustment. Uh, and he's seven-time champion. He's probably got more money he could ever spend in his life. He's got a beautiful wife, a young family, two girls. And for him to take this challenge on, uh, I find that admirable, to say the least. And uh, it brings a lot of uh, interest to the sport. I mean, to have a guy that's a seven-car, seven-time NASCAR champion come in and want to run open-wheel racing, that's a heck of a challenge. And uh, I take my hat off to the guy. And as as we mentioned previously, Tim, you personally experienced a driver jumping from Formula One to IndyCar competition. How did a Formula One veteran and champion like Nigel Mansell end up with Newman Haas while he was still the reigning Formula One champion? Well, uh, Michael Andretti, I went to work at Newman Haas at, uh, in 1989 at the start of the season, and I worked with Michael for four years. And at the end of the 1992 season, uh, Michael decided to go. Uh, McLaren offered him a seat next to Ayrton Senna uh, as, as Senna's teammate at McLaren. And I think Michael was always driven by the fact that Mario, his father, was a Formula One world champion in 1978. And Michael had won the IndyCar championship in 91. You know, he had mechanical difficulties at Indianapolis, uh, dominated the race a couple times, but didn't win. And, uh, but I still think the formula one thing, the opportunity was, uh, it was in his late twenties and, uh, he got the opportunity to go to formula one. He, it was a big loss for the team. I thought for him to leave. I mean, we had won 20, 20 races in four years. And uh, the championship in '91, and um, at the end of '92, he he was upfront about it. He called the shop and he told each one of the guys who worked on his car personally that what was going on. He was going to go over there, and uh, we were the crew was uh, it hurt, but 
Carl Haas called us all together. And they told us to keep our chins up. He said it was true Michael was going to leave. But he said, I'll have a, I'm going to have an announcement to make here in the next couple of days, and you'll be pleasantly surprised of who our new driver is going to be. Well, a couple of days later, Carl Haas walked into the back shop where we were working, and he was with Nigel Mansell. I remember we, Nancel, Nigel wanted to sit in a race car and see what they felt like. And uh, one of my first memories of him, he climbed in this car and he had on a cardigan sweater and a tie, proper English gentleman. And Tom Wirtz, the chief mechanic, uh, was pointing out things in the cockpit, um, how things were different, you know, from an Indy car to Formula One. And uh, he looked down at Mansell and he says, Nigel had this sweater and a tie on. He says, do you always drive in a tie? And Mansell got him in a headlock and pulled him down in the car with him. And I said, this guy might be all right. We might have some fun with him. And another thing I remember about him, he, he walked by one of the cars and he looked at it and he says, is that number three brake line on that car? He said, yeah. He says, that's a bit archaic, isn't it? He says, we run number two brake line. It gives us gives you a lot harder brake pedal. I went, wow. I mean, he was walking by the car and already picking up on stuff we did that he thought we can improve on. But, uh, so it was, a uh, Carl did, uh, it was a revolution really because Nigel was the reigning champion. He wasn't happy at Williams, obviously, uh, him and Frank Williams, uh, owner of the Williams formula one team that he had just won the championship for didn't get along. And Carl went over there and, uh, somehow, I mean, that's a coup. I mean, and it all the publicity it brought to IndyCar, it was a, uh, it was quite an accomplishment for Carl Haas. Obviously, it hurt to lose Mike, but to know you got the uh, reigning world champion for, uh, to drive your car the next year was a big plus for us too. And Tim, since Mansell did replace the highly respected Michael Andretti, was it difficult for you and the team members to? not only accept a new driver, but basically also a new personality on the team. Well, you know, when, when I went to work with Newman Haas, it was when Michael came there, so we kind of built something together. And uh, I really liked working with Mike. I mean, he's a hard charger, and uh, he was a friend of mine. And uh, we, I, I just really liked racing with the guy, and we had a really good racing team. Uh, the guys got along well together. And it hurt when he left. I didn't want him to leave, but I understood. But, uh, I mean, you know, I went to work at Newman Haas because I wanted to win races and championships. And uh, Mike decided to go to F1. I couldn't control that. And Carl Haas said our new driver is going to be Nigel. I mean, it was a – he obviously it was going to be an interesting season in 1993. So, uh, it, it was – it was something that it was a challenge, but at the same time, I mean, saying what can we what can we do with this guy, and, and uh, we'll give him the best ride we can. It'll be interesting to see how he would do on an oval. He'd never driven on an oval, and see where it took us. So it, it was a it was a challenge, but at the same time, I think the crew really looked forward to it. Good. Were you shocked personally when Nigel Mansell walks in? Well. I mean, Carl, Carl and Mr. Newman, uh, nothing really that they did. I mean, just look how Carl built the racing team to start with, how Newman Haas ever happened. I mean, he 
he pulled a coup when he got, uh, so to speak, when he got Mario to come and work there. Mario had been driving at Patrick Racing, uh, teammate Gordon Johncock for Patrick Racing. Uh, Mar- Mario wanted his own team, and, and Carl went to Paul. And uh, Carl was an incredibly smart businessman. He had very deep passion for automobile racing. I'll be honest with you, any nothing Carl Haas could accomplish would have surprised me. So, no, I wasn't surprised. I mean, it was pretty cool that you got the incoming world champion, I mean, the reigning world champion coming to drive your car, and we also had Mario, who was a Formula One world champion, two teammates. That's pretty well unheard of in IndyCar. So you talk about a heck of a lineup for 1993. That was something else. Yeah, someone like a dream team for IndyCar, it sounds like to me. I want to ask you something. It might be a little touchy, Tim, so tell me to, to go away with this one. But I guess it was fairly public, uh, the knowledge that Mario Andretti and Nigel Mansell were teammates, but maybe not really close friends at the time. What caused the friction between those two great drivers? Well, Mario was the world champion for Lotus Cars of England in 1978. And he drove there in 79 and 80. And the cars in 79 and 80 didn't match up to 78. Nigel was a young, upstart English Formula driver uh, looking at his eyes on Formula One at the time. And he didn't have a Formula One ride. But Colin Chapman, uh, the owner, uh, designer at Lotus, uh, took a liking to Mansell. Uh, he saw a promise in him. Nigel's an Englishman, and uh, Colin took him and and ran him in some tests. And I think in 1980, he decided to run three cars uh, so they could get Mansell in a couple of races. Well, him and Mario, that's when they met. And I guess they didn't, from what I heard, they didn't hit it off. And uh, that was in 1980. So you're talking 13 years later now. uh, You know, and... Mario was, when he went to work for Paul and Carl, um, he was adamant. He he had left Patrick Racing because Mario is one heck of a developer when it comes to, Mar- Mario is a brilliant uh, test driver in addition to everything he accomplished behind the wheel. And I think that he he believed that if he could get his own team when he went with Paul and Carl, that he would Mario liked developing uh, anything. I mean, he liked testing as much as he liked racing. He wanted to, he was always looking for the unfair advantage. That was Mario's creed. And uh, so he got his own team with Paul and Carl and got out of a two car deal at Patrick because he was sharing everything he figured out. And uh, so Newman Haas was a one car team. And the only reason it went to two is because Mike, his son, lost his ride with Craco at the end of 1988. Uh, they got they let Michael go and hired Bobby Rahal. Well, I think Mario stepped up to the plate, and that's the year that uh, uh, Kmart and Haviland agreed to sponsor Newman Haas as a father-son team, Michael and Mario, and that's the reason that Newman Haas went to two cars is uh, I really believe that Mario helped Mike get in the door there, and uh, that's the reason they were two cars. So, and Michael leaving, uh, I'm not too sure that Mario was real happy about. I mean, Nigel was a rookie in IndyCar, even though he was a world champion. And uh, so 
and their past background entered into it. And uh, so, yeah, it was, uh, we heard rumors about it and uh, we found out. Did it cause any problems with, uh, you? here we have the Newman Haas overall team, but then you're divided by car. Was there any disconnect between the two teams, between Mansell and Andretti at that time? Uh, I mean, when you when you work on a racing team, I want to be in fact about this. I mean, every mechanic uh, that goes to work on one of them teams, if your heart's in the right place, you want to win the race. And you might have a teammate that you, another, you know, you have two cars, you got two drivers, and you got two separate crews. So you might work in the same building all the time, and the bay next to you will be your teammate's car, and those guys will be building that car in the bay next to you. And then when you build the car and you load in the truck, you get in a you get in the uh, van and you go to the airport to fly to the race, and you're sitting next to your uh, teammates uh, that work on the other car. Fly next to them, sitting in the airplane, riding the van to the track with them a lot of times. Uh, but once you get to that track and you roll that car out into the pits, your teammate is might as well be driving for another team. I mean. You want to win the, every race you go to if your heart's in the right place as a racing mechanic. You want to beat anybody that's on the track. That's why I went to Newman Haas because I saw the capability of working with Mike and winning some races. To answer your question, uh, yeah, it was – you could feel the rivalry and rivalry, and it did get pretty intense between the crews. Well, thank you for your very honest and forthright interpretation of that situation, Tim, so many years ago. And back to Mansell, he was very successful in that rookie year. What what would you consider his main problem or challenge as a driver coming from Formula One to IndyCar? Well, the number one thing is he'd never raced on an oval. And, uh, uh, Ed Nathman had been our team manager my first four years there. He left at the end of the uh, – when Michael left at the same time Ed left. And Carl hired Jim McGee to come run the team. And Jim had worked with Mario when Mario was a rookie. And McGee is one of the smartest guys in, in IndyCar racing history as a mechanic and a uh, team manager. And he took over. He ran Nigel's. He was the stri- – strategist for Nigel and he was the team manager and uh, he did a pretty cool thing and I thought it was really smart with Nigel I mean Nigel right away with every road course we went to he was breaking the track record in testing but he had never run an oval and uh, I remember one thing that McGee did he uh, we went to Phoenix and we did a 200 mile simulated race and what I mean by simulated race uh, we did pit stops. Uh, he called yellow flags and made him uh, and made him slow down and, and and just you know cruise around for a few laps. And he did. His, Jim did a really smart thing there. But I remember uh, during the two hundred mile test, uh, Jim told me to get in a rental car with him, and we went down to turn three to watch Nigel running. Well. Phoenix is a very, very unforgiving place, and it's it's changed a lot since NASCAR owns it now, and they've completely changed the configuration out there of that track. But back in the day, uh, Phoenix was, I think, the most demanding track, other than Indianapolis, that we used to run at. 
and uh, it was super fast. It was a mile, and you're averaging nearly 190 miles an hour around a mile track. Nigel was hanging the right side of the car up in the gray in turn three during the test. And Jim looked at me, and he said, you've been around long enough to know what can happen if you keep tempting fate like that. And we got back in the car and went back to the pits. Well, when we went back in April for the race, um, the first practice session, Nigel was way faster than anybody on the track. And he was really aggressive getting, you could tell he was really standing on the gas holder in the corner up high into turn one up near the gray. And uh, in the second session, uh, exactly where I just said in turn one, entering the corner, he, he lost it and it backed into the fence. It was a, it was a heck of an impact. We heard it and you could, you saw him go out of sight and you heard the tire squealing and you heard the boom when he hit the fence. And so we walked down the pit lane to get a better, to look at, see what had happened. And Davey Evans, one of the guy on the guys on the crew said, look at that guy behind the wall. You can see his legs. And I'm like, what? And you looked, and there was a guy standing on the other side of the fence out in the parking lot, and you could see his legs. And Nigel had hit so hard backwards that it knocked a hole in the fence. And uh, Oh, my. <laughs> it was a huge impact. Well, it, it, it hurt him. Uh, it damaged his back so bad that he had to have surgery, uh, and it knocked him out of that race. He couldn't run. So uh, it was – what that meant was Phoenix was the only race before the 500 for the Indy 500. And that was the only place he was going to get any oval experience. And he didn't run Phoenix, obviously, because he spent the night in the hospital. So he went to Indianapolis as a raw rookie with no experience uh, at all running an oval. Ooh. So was there a way that you could get him some experience throughout the year or to just come naturally in preparing for each race? Well, uh, he did run uh, the next week. We ran Long Beach, and uh, uh, he he made it through the race with his back and everything. But then he had to have surgery, uh, and he came to Indy. And I remember he took his rookie test back in those days. I think a rookie test was like forty laps, and he took his rookie test all in one, like in you know, like an hour. He did it, and. Uh, and they turned him loose. Uh, he qualified. We didn't qualify really well. Um, and we f- figured out later it was a set of tires that were on the car that we didn't – they were not a good set of tires. And uh, he went back to Florida. So, I mean, he didn't have that many laps. I remember Mario scuffed his tires for him for the race. you got to have a lot of sets of tires for 500 miles. And uh, he went back to Florida. And he, he came back race day and ran the race. But that was his first experience. And I don't know how many Formula One guys I saw this happen to in my life. I remember as a kid, Graham Hill uh, slid through his pit on his first pit stop. Uh, Emerson Fittipaldi in 1984, I remember seeing him come down the pit lane and, and lock the brakes up and slide through his pit. And Nigel did the same thing mm. in 93. He... We figured out that uh, uh, on carb day, we figured out the tires were the problem in qualifying. And so Jim McGee said, first yellow, you come in, we're getting those things off the car. And uh, he started, I mean, he really went to the front then, and he, he got up, up into the lead. But uh, 
coming in the pits, I remember he, he locked his brakes up and he slid two pits down and we had to pull him back into the pit box, which put us all the way back to the back of the queue. And uh, later on in the race, uh, I believe it was the first year where they used to, they would close the pit and they would then announce over the radio, they were going to turn the, they'd turn the yellow uh, light off for the pits and open the pits up for everybody together. And uh, he missed, he drove by the mouth of the pits and had to go all the way around again and, and went to the back and still worked his way up to the front. And at the end of the race, he, he got the lead on a restart. I think he made a brilliant outside pass. He was racing with uh, Fittipaldi and uh, Leyendijk, and he got the lead. Well, he had not run an oval race, as I just said. And uh, I remember on the radio, uh, Jim McGee told him, said, Nigel, says, when you bring these guys down, you're in charge, and it's up to you. And uh, they drafted him and got around him and, uh, we ended up running third, and uh, I mean, sounds it sounds uh, like a good finish third, but it was very disappointing. And uh, you know, he'd had back surgery, and there it was a lot of uh, I don't know. It was it, it it didn't work out. You always want to win the five hundred, and we were close. And uh, but after that, you talk about he won every single oval for the rest of the year. I believe we ran. He went to Milwaukee and he did the same thing to Raul Bosell that had been done to him at the Speedway on a restart late in the race. He 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 got around Bosell on restart and won. Um, he won the Michigan 500, the two the two mile high banked oval in Michigan. He won that. He won Loud New Hampshire. Was a heck of a race with Paul Tracy and Fittipaldi. It was one of the best oval races I ever saw. They were running wheel to wheel the three of them, and Nigel got around both of them at the end of the race and won. And then the last oval of the year at uh, Nazareth, he won that. He only won uh, he won one road course that year. He was the reigning world Formula One champion, was uh, obviously a magnificent. I think he won 14 poles the year before in Formula One in nine races, and he only won one the first race he ran for us at Australia on, an, on a road course. And his other four victories were all on ovals. So uh, he obviously adapted pretty pretty quickly once he, he ran an oval race, which was his rookie race at the Speedway. And after that, he won them all. Oh, quite an accomplishment. So if you're going to compare a couple of drivers that you worked with in back-to-back years, what was the driving style like? Are any differences between Michael Andretti and Nigel Mansell? Um, well, the very first race we ran uh, at Australia with Nigel, he, he won the pole. And he was, uh, I think Nigel's the only guy to ever, uh, his rookie race, the first IndyCar race he ever drove, he won the pole and the race in Australia. But he started on the pole, and uh, it right away I noticed something different than Michael, because Michael, Michael Andretti might be the best guy at starting races I've ever seen in an IndyCar. He... Oh, for instance, in 1992, back-to-back oval races in Milwaukee and uh, Indianapolis. At Indy, he started sixth and was leading in the first turn. And uh, at Milwaukee, the next race, I think he started in the third row. And coming around off turn four in the first lap, he passed Bobby Rahal on the outside to take the lead on the first lap from the third row. 
So Michael's a hard charger from the get-go from when they dropped the green flag. Well, uh, Nigel brings him down in Australia, and he comes around to the end of the first lap, and he's running third. In the next lap, I think it was Robbie Gordon got around him, and he drops back to fourth. We're all looking at each other, and he comes on the radio, and he goes, Don't worry, boys. I'm just taking it easy. And I said to myself, Has this guy got an S on his chest or something? Uh, but pretty soon he, he did. I mean, he come through the field. And uh, I also remember one other thing he did that day that I'd never seen anybody do uh, before. Uh, when you lock the brakes up in a race car, uh, the tires smoke and uh, it flat spots the tires. Well, that day he, he had smoke coming off his tires, but I'm watching on the big screen on the TV and the tires are still turning. And I, I'd never seen anybody do that. He didn't flat spot the tires, but the tires were, there was smoke coming off of them as he braked, but he didn't flat spot them and they kept turning. The tires kept turning. And I asked him about it later and he pointed his, to his temple, to his brain, and he says, it's in the old computer, mate. And I went, okay. <laughs> but uh, that was a big difference. I mean, Michael was from the get-go, when you dropped the green flag, he was going for it and Nigel was just more conservative at the start, but he sure uh, he sure made up for it after that. That was an incredible first year in IndyCar racing for Nigel. How did he do his second year, Tim? Well, first year was uh, Camelot, I'd say, and the second year was probably as bad as the first year was good. Uh, one big reason for it was uh, – Roger Penske really stepped up to the plate. Uh, he hired uh, Al Jr., Alancer Jr., away from Gallus, and he had uh, Emerson Fittipaldi, and he had Paul Tracy. And that was the year he came up with the pushrod Mercedes. Uh, he developed an engine in, in secret over in Europe, and uh, this engine they had, they brought to – it was only uh, legal at Indianapolis, but it was rumored to be around 1,000 horsepower, and they had a – definite advantage at the speedway it was um, they they all he had to do was look at how much wing they were running in those cars and you could see the wicker bills uh, were <laughs> they were running bigger wickers than we were because they had more power which means they had more downforce in the corner this is the last time at the speedway I remember seeing cars you could see flames come out of their exhaust pipes at the scoring tower in the front straightaway <laughs> I mean they were going they were going pretty quick down the straightaway but uh, and Petsky's cars that year, they had transverse gearbox, I believe. And, you know, they were rumored to be running traction control. I don't know where they were or not, but they really, Roger's team really stepped up to the plate, uh, after Mansell won the championship and they came in loaded for bear and, uh, not saying they caught us with our pants down, but we, we didn't have a, a very good year at all. It was Mario's Arrivederci tour. He was retiring at the end of the year. I think Nigel won the pole at Michigan, and that was the only – I mean, never won a race, either car all year. You know, it, it was – by our standards, after winning 25 races in in uh, five years with Mike and Nigel to not win a race, it was uh, – it wasn't a lot of fun, no. Mm. Nigel, as you've mentioned, has a, had a great personality. How was his interaction with his fans? Did, a, did the U.S. fans embrace him, even though he was a – well, he became an IndyCar champ. But that first year, how did the U.S. fans treat Nigel Mansell? 
The paparazzi, I mean, in addition to the fans, I mean, the first time he ran a test for us, uh, here he is, the reigning world champion, Formula One. He's not even going to go back. He drives for us. So we go out to test at Phoenix. There was 200 uh, media people. I mean, they there was people from Europe, Australia, uh, that came to uh, to the test to cover. And it wasn't a race. There's no fans there. It's just a test in the middle of the desert in Arizona. And, uh, I mean, it was obvious from the get-go. I mean, the, the paparazzi f- flocked to the guy. It was it was eye-opening experience for me uh, to, to see. And, I mean, he I thought he was good with the fans. I mean, he, uh, he was a world champ, so there was a, there was a lot of interest in him. And I thought it brought a lot of publicity to IndyCar, which is, was never hurts. I mean, we're trying, you're trying to sell your product and get sponsors and get TV coverage in the deal. And, uh, so him being there that first year, it really, it really opened the door to a lot of stuff. And I mean, NASCAR came on later in the nineties, but they say when, like when Nige was running, uh, IndyCar in, uh, 93, that the interest in, in IndyCar was as strong as any series in the world. I mean, it was to have the reigning world champion come and run your series was, a it was a real feather in the cap for IndyCar. So Tim, with Nigel's giant personality, was it difficult for you and the crew members to work with someone that was world famous like that? How did he treat the crew? Well, I thought he treated us pretty darn good. Um, he was very appreciative towards us. Um, we, you know, I mean, when my mom came to the races, uh, he, he told me to tell my mother to come by the bus and have a spot of tea with him. He was very accommodating in that respect. Um, there was a couple times where, I mean, he was, we were testing the car and, and, uh, and the engineers had wanted a suspension change or whatever. And he'd come over to us, the, the guys were working on the car and said, how long is this going to take? And we said, uh, probably, 45 minutes and he says if you can do it in 40 he goes he goes i'll buy your dinner tonight so we get after it and uh change the suspension and even if it didn't get done in the amount of time that we said maybe say 50 minutes to get it done uh changing the wishbones or whatever uh you give the chief mechanic you give him 500 bucks and say take the boys out to dinner tonight i mean he was he was he was generous in that respect, and uh, he's one of the few guys in my career at the end of the season when he he slid some uh, he slid some cash in my pocket and said, "Well done, mate. I appreciate your hard work." So, um, yeah, he was generous in that respect. I don't care. Uh, a lot of people are jealous of him. Uh, you know, he everyone. I mean, there's a lot of egos in racing and everything. And, and it was tough, you know, the crews, not not just the personality conflicts between the drivers, but um, it, it carries over to the crews, too. I'm not going to lie about it. I mean, like I said earlier, when you're working on a car, you want to win the race. Even if your teammate, when you roll that car out in the pit lane, you get your, your car pulls away, you want to beat everybody out there. So racing's competitive, and, uh, I mean, it carried over, and there was the second year especially, it there was a lot of hard feelings on the team. It was tough. 
And so, Tim, all good things must come to an end. And after just two years, uh, Nigel Mansell left Newman Haas. Uh, why did that happen? And how did the team go about replacing him? Well, Nigel, Nigel didn't like to test. And uh, he, in Formula One, they had a test driver. And the first year we raced, he tested because he didn't know the tracks and the circuits. But he thought the second year that, uh, you know, and Mario was big on testing. That was a there was a bit of a clash between about that, but uh, uh, Michael had lost his deal with McLaren, and he wanted to come back. And uh, I mean, Nigel was aware of this, and I don't know whether he—I still to this day don't know whether he went to the owners and said, "I want a, your reassurance" or whatever. But I'll never forget—he he pulled me aside at Detroit, and this was in June. Uh, we still had like ten races left in the year. And he told me, he said, I won't be back next year. He said, Michael's coming back to drive here. And I went, what? Uh, so it was, and like I said earlier, there was, uh, him and Mario got together and crashed uh, at Loudon, New Hampshire. It was a, it was a bad crash. I and mean, Mario, thank God he wasn't hurt. And Nigel was upset on the radio. He said he, he didn't mean, I mean, they touched wheels and uh, they were racing really hard. Nigel was complaining after the crash. He kept racing, and he said the car was uh, really trying to spin on him. And uh, a lot of guys are saying, well, he quit. You know, he, McGee told him to get out of the car and park it if it was unsafe. So a lot of guys are going, well, you know, he quit, and he doesn't want to run. So we had made some suspension changes to the car just before we rolled the car out into the pits. So the scales were still set up in the garage with that's how you set the car up on the scale pads. So we rolled the car on the scale pad and checked the measurements. Well, when him and Mario hit on the track in turn one before Mario hit the wall, um, the right rear upright on Nigel's car was bent, and the toe link was um, the, the right rear toe, which is a suspension setting, uh, was about a half inch of toe in, which was, would lead the car to be loose. So he wasn't making that up. And I remember after the race, uh, Billy Simmons as Mario's chief and myself, I mean, we had words at the bus and that was 30 years ago or 29 years ago. And Billy and I are good friends to this day, but that's the kind of stuff that happens in racing. You know, you can, in the heat of the battle, um, and that was that kind of year. I mean, we, it was a struggle and there was personalities involved and we didn't win anything and. Mentally, it was tough. First year with Nigel was like Camelot, and the second year was uh, we didn't have a lot of fun. Well, Tim, thank you as always for your insightful recollections and stories about your time in IndyCar racing. Is there anything else you'd like to add about the great champion, Nigel Mansell, including maybe some specific accomplishments that he made while he was in the U.S.? There's never been anybody that he was the reigning Formula One champion. He he vacated his title. Never, I mean, he came over here to race with us, and I always found it a. It, it, no one's ever done this. He he clinched a championship at Nazareth for IndyCar in October, and I believe Prost had not clinched the championship in Formula One yet. So, essence, Nigel was the reigning Formula One champion and the current IndyCar champion. That's never going to happen again. That was a phenomenal accomplishment. And I'll always remember when he got 
jumped on that restart at the end of the Indy 500. He was leading and Fittipaldi and Lion Dyke drafted him on a start and got around him. He went and chased them down. Coming off turn two, he hit the fence. He brushed the wall and uh, the yellow came out. And uh, McGee ordered him to pit. I mean, he you could see the flash off the wheels when he touched the fence. And he refused to come in. He said, I'm not coming in. I'm going to finish the race. The car, I drove it. He drove it down on the rumble strips and turned the wheel back and forth. He said, the cars, I can finish. <laughs> and he wouldn't come in. So he finished the race and we finished third. But uh, he was determined. There's no doubt about that. And he proved it by coming over here and never having run an oval. And he won four ovals and uh, he won the IndyCar championship. And it was a... It was a great year in my career, and I'll never forget it. I mean, at the end of the year, the guy, he had jackets made for all of the whole crew, everybody, both cars, uh, token his appreciation. And uh, when he left the team, he gave the guys on the crew, he wrote them a letter that said that uh, with his letterhead, and he was an uh, order of the British Empire, he's the queen. Uh, made him a OBE for his world championship accomplishments and everything. And he gave everybody a letter that recommended him. He recommended our crew. Uh, he says, if you ever need a recommendation in life, you gave each guy a letter from him on his letterhead that said we were a, a crack outfit and a good bunch of guys. And he recommended us for uh, future employment or whatever. I'll, I still got that letter and all. Uh, it was the first year was good, and the second year didn't work out so well. But uh, it was a it was a time in my life that uh, uh, I'll never forget it. Uh, you just put it in the old, like he said, put it in the old computer, and you go along. But in 1993, uh, like when he won that race at Loudon, New Hampshire, with that, it was a titanic struggle with those Penske cars, and uh, it was one of the best races I ever saw, and I'll, I'll never forget that. And uh, I'll always be proud that I, I work for Nigel Mansell. Well, Tim, do you still have that jacket? Yes, I certainly do. <laughs> well, good for you. <laughs> and thanks to all who have listened again to this episode of Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History. Again, check with the sportshistorynetwork.com if you'd like to leave a message or a question with Tim. And we hopefully will see you back here next time as Tim continues his amazing memories and recollections of IndyCar racing. Thank you. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that?
I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.